Dr. Evelyn Duplazes works as a biophysical and computational chemist, but a path to academic success is an extraordinary winding tale. After leaving school in Switzerland at 16, it was a chance conversation years later that led to her being awarded a PhD in Australia in 2012. Evelyn is passionate about creating your own definition of success, about increasing diversity and equity in STEM disciplines, and about teaching the next generation of scientists to be critical thinkers. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and you're listening to Women in Science, a podcast series from the University of Queensland. Welcome, Evelyn. I'm really excited to talk to you about your story because I think you've got a really interesting background. So I'd like to start with talking about your early education. As I understand it, you did not come from a a traditional academic background? Yes, that's correct. No, I didn't come from an academic (laughs) background at all, actually. My my parents on my mother's side um, are dairy farmers. So I grew up in Switzerland and my mum's family are dairy farmers. My dad's side are essentially railway workers, labourers. So there was actually no one in my family that ever went to university. My auntie got married to a GP, but that was sort of the only time I met someone that went to university. But by the time I was around, he had already finished his university days. So when I grew up, there was really no role model also, no, no concept of what it actually means to go to uni. Mm. So what did you think then your career would be and, and, and what did you see for your future? I was actually thinking about that when I was preparing for this and I realised I don't think I planned any of it because I always loved science and I loved going to school. Mm. So for me, going to school was awesome. I know um, for many people or many kids, going to school might, might not be what, what they like, but I enjoyed learning. Mm. I always enjoyed learning. I was very excited to go to school. And this wasn't just science. It was everything um, back home in Switzerland. We had to learn two different languages on top of um, German. So I had to learn French and English. We had literature. And I liked all of these things. And I particularly liked science. I loved chemistry. So when I was in high school, I maybe started thinking a bit about doing something related to chemistry. But then because I got quite sick as a teenager that sort of got derailed and I really didn't plan much and after that it was it was only later when I came to Australia that I started being able to plan again before it was just trying to muddle through my teenage years. So what did what did you do in the interim between being in Switzerland and Australia what what was your sort of work and and your training? So I dropped out of high school and when I say I dropped out I I was quite sick when I was 16 so I went to hospital for about 6 months. I went back to high school. It meant that I had to redo a certain year. And then after six months, I relapsed, got sick again, went to hospital again. And then by the time I went back to high school, I would have had to do that particular year for the third time. And I was just not not having that. So I decided to leave high school. And in Switzerland, the most common education, apart from senior high school, is to do an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And so I did two-year apprenticeship as a car electrician, actually. (laughs) I really loved the technical side of it, but I realized I'm not exactly very talented with my hands. I'm too clumsy. So I'm really good at thinking about technical things, Mm -hmm. but I'm not really good with my hands, which is probably also why I turned into a computational chemist, but that's later. (laughs) That comes later. (laughs) Um, So I decided to uh, do another apprenticeship for two years, which is essentially related to the logistics of spare parts. So both the customer from the outside, but also the mechanics at the workshop, they come to you and say, you know, I do. I need to do a service on a Golf 4 and then you need to find all the parts. 
So that's what I did. And then I did a business diploma as well in night school at the same time. And then I worked as a technical assistant in engineering and companies first and then in a bank. What an interesting background. And then I came to Australia when I was about 24. Mm -hmm. Yes, 24. And is that where you started your scientific education? Yes, I think I just had one of these. It's in hindsight, it was. It sounds like one of these turning points, and it, it was. But I don't think I was that aware how mm. much a turning point it was in my life. And it was literally a coincidence that we were having dinner with friends, with our neighbours in Australia back in Perth, and one of the um, women that was there was saying, "Oh, now my kids are growing up. I can go back to uni." And I was a bit puzzled because that woman would have been in her late 30s, early 40s then. And in Switzerland, if you don't finish senior high school, there is not really an alternative pathway to university. If you don't have that high school certificate, then you don't go to uni. It might be different now, but that's what it was when I was back in Switzerland. So I said to her, well, how can you go to uni at your age and having Mm. not done high school just recently? And she said, oh, you can go to these study advisors at university and they tell you which tests, entry tests you need to sit as a mature age student and then you can study science or whatever you want to study with some exceptions. Of course. And I was just like, oh my God, I can go to uni. And, and I think all this, what I had put aside for so many years because I was sick, all this idea of me studying science came back. Yeah. So I went to Curtin University, I went to UWA as well and ECU and I asked about all these pathways and they said, yes, these are the tests you need to do. Because I didn't have a high school diploma, I needed to do these entry tests. And this was in math, in science and in English. So I literally got myself the high school books or the books that the high school students had back then and locked myself into the library for three months back in the local library back in Perth and started studying wow. you know back then it was I was 23 24 then so it had been a few years it was yeah, probably yeah. seven eight years since I've been to high school and also last time I learned science and math it was in German it was not in English yep. and while my English was okay it's very different it was yeah. the academic English I learned in school which is you know essays and Shakespeare I didn't have the English to actually do science so I literally spent three months just studying very hard and passed the entry test and enrolled into a double degree in computer science and chemistry. And yeah, as I said, I think back then I wasn't aware how much a turning point that was. But for me, it was I finally got to be a scientist. I finally got to study science. I just loved learning. Hmm. Incredible. And so then how did you end up doing a PhD and, and how did you find that period of intense and focused research? For my PhD, I think very soon... When I was in my undergrad, I realized I love learning and I love research. I did little internships and really liked being able to focus on a specific project and integrate what I've learned from the different degrees. So I did chemistry and computer science, and I started doing little internships with people in the field of computational chemistry. So that was very enjoyable to me. And so I decided to follow a PhD. I was a bit naive in terms of I didn't really know what that meant for a career. I was just excited about the idea of spending three and a half years mm. on a project. And that was my project. And I think that's what a lot of people And I find. think that's the truth for a lot of people. You don't really, I didn't start a PhD by saying I wanted to become, you know, an academic or go into consulting or go into science communications or mm. policy. I just loved doing research. Mm. And someone offered me a certain amount of money, a stipend for basic living 
to do research for three years and I was excited about it. And the PhD was probably one of the most enjoyable times of my life in terms of in terms of academia because I think you have that one project you can focus on mm. and that's yours mm. and it's a sense of ownership as it's well it's a sense isn't it? of ownership as well I think yes and because I was a bit older than most other students I really was devoted to it I wasn't 20 and I had my partying out of my system and all these things many people do in their early 20s by the time I started my PhD I was 29 and I had moved country from Switzerland to Australia so I was quite mature so I really focused on my studies and I really got engaged not just with the science but I applied for travel scholarships to go to conferences and I visited another lab in the Netherlands and and I went to Sydney for another lab and so I really dived in to the PhD experience. So were some of those connections you made in your PhD in terms of collaborators what led you to your postdoc? Some of them actually became very important to me because I went back to Curtin after four years of UQ and then I went back to Curtin University. And then, like so many people these days, I was at a situation where I was told my contract won't be renewed. Um, There was no other work that I could find in Perth. So I needed to decide whether I would move to the other cities again or whether I leave academia. And for years, one of my collaborators of mine was someone that I met during my PhD. He kept sending me these emails every year saying, look, University of Technology Sydney has these Chancellor Fellowships. <laughs> Come and join us. And yeah. I kept saying, I don't want to live in Sydney. <laughs> so every year for about three or four years, he kept sending me these emails for these applications. And then when I didn't have a job or when I didn't have a new contract inside. I emailed him and said, do you remember these fellowships that you just had? Do they still have them? <laughs> Took me four years, but I'm, I'm on board. And his first answer said, I thought you didn't want to live in Sydney. I said, well, let's, let's not talk about it. Yeah. I very value it. And we wrote a project application together and it was, it was a very tough, the success rates are about 8% for these fellowships. Mm. It was a very tough interview and I ended up getting one of these Chancellor's Fellowships and I moved to UTS. And this is essentially where I started transitioning from being a postdoc to running my own research group, Hmm. a very small research group at the start. But yes, so yes, the contacts I made in my PhD turned out to be very valuable later. I think that's the thing. We sort of never know where these contacts lead us. You know, you talk to somebody at a conference and, and five years later, they're your collaborator. They're your collaborators, but they could also be the people evaluating your grants. They could be the people on job application panels. It could just be a small favour. You know, mm. the other day, my own postdoc wanted to apply for a fellowship at CSRO. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know anything about CSRO in terms of how they function with their fellowships. So I wanted to help my postdoc prepare his application. So I just picked up the phone and called someone that I've met them many times at conference centres, which I've known have wor- has worked at mm. CSR for many years, and said, would you mind having a chat with my postdoc to give him some insight about what it means to work at CSRO? So these little contacts mm. can, can really be helpful down the line of your career. And you said at UTS this was where you sort of started your own group and started your leadership position. How did you adjust to that? Was that something that you felt very natural in, in taking on that responsibility? No, not at all. It's actually funny you ask that because I'm preparing some slides for the student symposium at SCMB for Friday. And for me, one of the most pivotal things in my career was the mentorship program from the Franklin Women in Sydney. It's competitive to get into and you can't apply yourself, your institution or your, you know, the head of school needs to put you forward. And my mentor was a very senior woman in science. She very challenged me and said, after about three or four meetings, she said to me, you know, you don't act like a group leader. You 
are still a postdoc. Mm. The way you speak about yourself, the way you portray yourself, and the way you write about yourself in your applications. And she was right. I had to go back and I realized I became very comfortable being that senior research fellow. Mm. Senior in terms of I became very confident in my skills as a mm. scientist. I knew what I was doing in terms of my computational work. I went back. Another transition at UTS is that I went back into the lab. Mm -hmm. So I, I was quite confident with my science. But I was not comfortable to see myself as a group leader. So she challenged me and said, do you actually run your own group meetings? And I said, no, I don't. Well, she said, well, you've got a postdoc and two mm. PhDs. So why don't you? Why not? And... It was really physically, it was physically, mentally, emotionally, it was so challenging because I felt like a cheat. I felt like mm. really, imposter. I'm not sure where this imposter, I just felt like I am, who am I supposed to be here saying that I'm the group leader? Like my first meeting, I was sat down and all my students and my postdoc sat down and I was literally waiting for someone to start the meeting till it dawned on me that I'm running the meeting. So that was really hard for me to make that shift and to find that confidence to say, yep, okay, I run my own group, which means I'm a group leader and that's how I need to talk about myself and mm. that's how I need to write about myself in my grant applications. I'm not naturally a very confident person. And people sometimes think I'm very confident and they're surprised when I say that I don't feel confident because I'm a very loud, mm. extroverted, opinionated person. But that doesn't mean you're no. confident. Yeah. So for me, that was petrifying to actually be able to say, uh, yes, I'm a group leader and Yes, that's me. And, <laughs> and I, think that's, I think that's such a common story in that as scientists, we're always taught to question ourselves. And that's what makes a good scientist, right? Somebody who's critical. But at the same time, that to becomes... To step up and exactly. just say, that's me and I'm going to do this. Yeah. And that takes a level of confidence. And to me, it literally felt like... It felt like arrogance and I needed to find this style. And I, my, my mentor was very good at trying to tell me, also when I wrote fellowship applications, she kept saying, when you think you're writing something that's arrogant, you're probably just being confident. Mm. So my dial of where is confident, where is being overconfident, my dial was very off. Mm, mm. And it was just not something that came natural to me to transition from being a postdoc to running my group. It took a lot of a lot of hard work. So for me, it wasn't so much the signs. And yes, of course, getting the funding is <laughs> that's another story. But yes, that's another podcast. In, internally, it took a lot of work for me mm. to shift that perception about myself. And, and I think those leadership skills are, are some of the toughest we have to develop in science. That sort of brings us to our so-called rapid fire questions that we ask every guest. So I was wondering if you could tell us which woman or women have been the sort of biggest influence in your life? It's a big question. And quite often you hear people talking about women or people from their childhood or their past. But I would have to say my mentor that I recently had, mm. because she had this wonderful combination of really challenging me and pushing me out of my comfort zone while being caring. Mm, what an incredible combination. And she's a very tough person. She can be tough on you, but she cares. She mm. comes from a good place. Having that very senior scientist to say, you can do this, you just, just get out of that comfort zone, that was a very big influence for me. 
you know, we talk about obstacles that we face as, as women in science. Did you experience any kind of obstacles related to your gender during your sort of scientific journey to date? Uh, that always feels like a bit of a loaded question because, at least to me, because I actually don't think I overtly mm-hmm. came across any barriers. That might have something to do with the fact that I'm not a mother. I, mm. So I, a lot of the barriers that my friends, I know my female friends, have experienced in their scientific careers, I didn't have because mm. I didn't have children. My biggest barriers were probably more related to trying to find the balance between staying healthy with a you know with a history of health issues mm. and the work hours and massive pressure in academia that was my biggest challenge i think it's only recently when i started realizing how that scissograph of being at level c and and seeing how few that fewer women mm. get the big grants get to professor i'm becoming more aware but that's just a system as a whole. Mm. Me personally, I didn't think I had barriers that related to me being female. Mm. But that might also be related to the fact that I'm just the kind of person that proactively goes after what she wants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and look, you know, I think we talk about barriers a lot and maybe this is the difference between now and, and 20 years ago. Totally. When I talk to women, like one of the women that also influenced me was Professor Frances Aparo, which who just recently retired from the University of Melbourne. And, and she, you know, she was the first professor in chemistry in the state of Victoria. She has stories where she was told, why would you want to do a PhD? All you're going to do is have more children, get married. So these kind of, Explicit, when you hear these yeah. stories of women that are just, you know, now close to or about to retire, you realise it's not that long ago mm. that it was okay, apparently, to say things like that. This overt bias, I think, is no longer acceptable, or at least, I hope, less prevalent. But I think the underlying systemic barriers are there. Just between you and me and all the people who listen to this, I mean, I watch uh, some trashy 90s TV, and I'm always stunned by how politically incorrect and discriminatory the language was and that's in the 90s in the 90s yes exactly and a lot of the women that are probably now you know heads of schools and professors they went to university 70s 80s 90s they were trying to transition to group leaders in the 90s and some of the stories you hear conferences over dinner are pretty shocking and Mm. it makes you realize it's not that long ago no no we've come along we still have a way to go but we've come a long way my final question to sort of end up this talk is, is what's the, the best piece of advice that you've ever received or what would you like in terms of piece of advice leave younger scientists with? Probably to tread your own path. I often found that finding a balance between asking people for advice but then also reflecting on whether it applies to you. Whenever I have big decisions, I talk to people and I listen to their advice but I also had situations where I had to then reflect and say whether that actually applies to me. And, that, and I'll give you a quick example where after my PhD, I asked people, should I go overseas for a postdoc? And everyone, yes, 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 you have to go overseas for a postdoc. In my case, that was a problem because my partner couldn't leave Perth. I wasn't prepared to go overseas not being able to see him. So we 
found the compromise that I stayed in Australia where I could travel back between Perth and, and Eastern States a bit more. But when I actually started digging about the advice and said, so why do I have to go overseas? People had very good arguments. And one of them was, you need to be exposed to different lab cultures, different universities, different systems. And the other one was usually, it's very good for your personal growth. And it's just one of these things that everyone should do is to live in a different country. And I went back and said, well, hold on. Yeah. I've done that. <laughs> I'm when doing I that. was 23, I left my entire life and family back in Switzerland and moved to Australia because I fell in love with a man that happened to live in Australia. Mm. So I think I've done that. So that's when I realized, actually, yes, I want to move to a different institution. But in my personal case, that doesn't mean I have to go overseas. So by all means, ask people for advice. But at the end of the day, you need to tread your own path and, and follow what works for you and your family. I love that. I think that's a fantastic message to finish this with. So thank you so much for a really, really interesting chat and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Women in Science, a podcast series from the University of Queensland. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Dr. Malu Stecker and Dr. Marina Fortes. Technical production is by Daniel Seed. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short. Thanks for listening.